LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Robert Howells, who joins us to discuss his latest book, The Last Pope, Francis and the Fall of the Vatican. Nearly a thousand years ago, the Archbishop of Armagh, later canonised as St Malachi, made a series of prophecies that were hidden in the Vatican for 400 years. His predictions gave clues to the identities of the 109 popes from medieval times to the present day, including the final pope who would oversee the end of the papacy and the fall of the Roman Catholic Church. The last pope examines the sudden rediscovery of these prophecies in the 16th century and how they may have been used as propaganda in the campaign to promote Pope Gregory XIV to the papal throne. The book also explores the claim that the prophecies are forgeries. Ultimately, they stand or fall by their accuracy after the time of their rediscovery and there are many examples where, even in recent years, they have proven to be entirely correct. In the final prophecy, St Malachi describes the last pope as Peter the Roman. The worldwide media frenzy surrounding the resignation of Benedict and the election of Francis set the stage for the current pope, who may be the last of the line. Is Francis Peter the Roman? Will he prove Malachi right and oversee the fall of Rome and the destruction of the Catholic Church? Hello and welcome, Robert, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi, Greg. Thank you for having me. Uh, Robert, today we're going to discuss your recent book, which is called The Last Pope, um, subtitled Francis and the Fall of the Vatican. But before we dive into that, perhaps you just tell listeners a little bit about your background and how you became interested in these historical, biblical and religious mysteries. Okay, yes. Um, I was always a, a, a writer, really. I was always an author. I wrote fiction originally. <clears throat> but I was interested in diver- a very diverse range of subjects, ranging from anything from astral projection and the esoteric side of things to historic mysteries. I got very interested in secret societies and the idea of whether or not they had any secrets and whether there was anything beyond the day-to-day realm that we live in. Um, partly this came from my childhood. I would astral project without any warning. I didn't even know what it was called when I first did it, but I could... Uh, leave my body at various times and look down on myself. I'd see myself in bed. And it, it happened when I got flu and things like that. So I had these experiences. I also had very lucid dreams, very vivid dreams. Uh, and I began to write down my dreams and I discovered that I had a kind of inner landscape that over a number of years I'd pieced together from different dreams. So I, I, got, I got kind of interested in alternative ideas. Um, religion I didn't find was very fulfilling. So I've read most of the major religions. I read everything from Buddhism to Zoroastrianism. 
uh, I think I read pretty much all the major Bibles, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita. So I was building up quite a background. But my my real interest started to build on secret societies, uh, the Freemasons and the Knights Templars, and around heresies and alternative versions of Christianities. And I got very involved in a mystery called Rennes-le-Chateau in the south of France. I'm not sure. Have you come across that? Oh, absolutely. Well, that's quite, I mean, I, I remember reading The Holy Blood and The Holy Grail back in the yes. 80s. Yes, that, I, I'm kind of in the same boat. I read that. I wasn't entirely happy with the book, but I liked that it was a living mystery. I'd read about things. I read like, you know, about ufology and I'd read about the pyramids. And there's not a lot you can do with those things. You can't really do primary research on UFOs. You can't, without a great deal of wrangling and permission, go and just dig up places in Egypt. So I like the fact that the church, there was this church in the south of France and a mystery around it, a religious mystery, and that it's all still there. And you can go today and you can look around this church and it's a very strange church. It's got a Masonic floor. It's got a full life-size statue of a demon just inside the door. Um, It's got Rosicrucian crosses on the walls. So And it seems to be pointing to things like there's hints of treasure. There's a bag of gold in one of the frescoes. There's a tomb, a hidden tomb in a cave on the, painted on the altar with Mary Magdalene. And it, was, it became linked to a secret society called the Priory of Sion. And it became linked to this idea that Jesus was married and um, possibly had children, had a family, and that he may actually be buried somewhere in that vicinity. So I spent many years kind of, I had absorbed all this information. And like most people, you absorb this stuff and you can't really use it in your day to day life. Um, but I, so I found an outlet for it. I have found this mystery and I began to quite seriously research it and gather notes and information. I also became a manager of uh, Watkins Bookshop in London, which is one of the largest and oldest occult bookshops in Europe. I began working here in the mid-1990s, and I, I became a manager for five years up until the year 2000. Um, and that's a, a, a huge array of books on every esoteric subject. So I was continually reading these, but I was also meeting lots of different people. I was invited to Freemasons Hall and shown around Freemasons Hall and the library. I had access to the Freemasons Library. Um, I met members of various orders, the Order of the Knights Templars, uh, the Portuguese, the American ones, the British ones, the Scottish ones, uh, the Order of Lazarus, which are quite not very well known. Um, But also I met a member of the Priory of Sion, somebody who knew, who had inside information, documents on these kinds of subjects. So I, I... Stay, I didn't stay in contact with him, but when uh, I was invited to work on a documentary in about 2003 called Bloodline, so uh, to do with the, the Da Vinci Code had come out and caused a huge fuss, and somebody I knew who was making documentaries who I'd helped, I, I'd assisted on a few of his documentaries on research on Egypt and things, and he basically asked me if I'd be the lead researcher on a documentary. It was independently funded on this idea of bloodline Jesus and the mystery of Renle Chateau. So I, I spent about three years working on that documentary. Uh, and in order to do it, I contacted the member of the Priory of Sion who I'd encountered years before. And he agreed to talk. Not only did he agree to talk, he then sent me a huge amount of information, over 300 emails, maps, diagrams, tarot card designs, an incredible amount of information that had not been in the public domain. 
Um, and anyone that's read Holy Blood, Holy Grail would kind of perhaps know how important that was. And I was already writing. I was already a researcher and a writer. So I, it was almost a duty to kind of compile it and write it. I ended up writing a book that was, I think I came in at about 300,000 words, just over 200,000 words, which I cut to 150,000 for the publisher to accept. And then when it went to edit, we cut it again to 100,000. I had so much information, I had half the book. Um, part of that mystery, which seeks into what I've, my recent book, is the, the intersection has a lot, the Prior of Sion and a lot of the biblical and bloodline kind of stuff heads towards the idea of an apocalypse. It's, um, it includes prophecy, it includes uh, visions of the end times. And as part of so as part of my research for that, I covered a lot of these mystics and the seers and the prophets from the Old Testament, the New Testament, from other religions, and since those times, since biblical times to the present, the kind of the Nostradamus. Um, and one of the people I come across was this guy from Armagh, who was the first uh, canonized person from actually from Ireland, which was St Malachi. He was the bishop of Ireland, uh, one of the leading figures of the Reformation of uh, Catholicism in Ireland in the Middle Ages. He was there in the uh, 11th, in the 12th century, and Malachi had predicted a, a document had been left in the Vatican that was attributed to Malachi uh, that claimed to be a prophecy of all the popes from his time to the present day, and to the final pope and to the apocalypse around that pope. And I picked up on that, and I was aware that we were nearing the time of the final pope, that of the 112 prophecies he made, we were with Cardinal Ratzinger at the penultimate pope, and the idea was the next pope would be the last. So our current pope was going to be the last pope, according to the prophecies of St Malachi. In the book, in the Prior of Zion book, I didn't have the reach to kind of uh, do it any justice to really look into it and to really uh, spend that much time on it it was almost a footnote uh, in a chapter on prophecy and on the end time kind of ideas around the end times so I, I put it to one side but when I finished the prior of Zion book it was one of the things that stayed with me and I spoke to my publisher and my agent and I decided to we talked through it and I decided that I'd like to revisit it and I felt there was an avenue there and that I had enough background knowledge to do not just a kind of this is what we this is what he prophesied and this that's it. I, I really felt one of the things the Prior of Sion had given me was a contact in the Vatican secret archive. So I had access to the Vatican. You have anyway, you can contact the external Vatican, the Vatican Library, but I also had an archivist there who I could talk to. So I knew I I, I had a certain amount of credibility in the area and I ability to kind of perhaps get access to more information than maybe other people would so it felt like a good project and a good mystery to go to look into um so that that's kind of what led me to the book well of course the da vinci code when that came out both the book and the film sparked enormous popular interest and i think this whole general area captures the public imagination for reasons that you alluded to earlier is that there seems to involve some sort of apocalypse. And, you know, even people who are not religious, even people who would call themselves hardcore atheists kind of get sucked into this stuff. But 
aside from that, certainly in the modern era, uh, since the days of Nostradamus, where prophecy has been somewhat out of favor. I mean, evangelicals, yeah. evangelicals, as you point out in the book, still value prophecy today. But yes. when we think of prophecy in the 21st century, we think of all those end time cults that were around in the 70s and then 1999 and then 2012, all the prophets of doom. We think of yeah. ridiculous figures like Harold Camping. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I was quite surprised when I was in America when I was seeing these, you know, the end is near and all these people who had sold their houses to follow this guy and uh, proclaim that the end times were upon us. Um, and were all kind of left destitute. I mean, it, unfortunately, if they'd have done some research, they'd have realised he'd done it once before in the 1990s. Uh, and it, in exactly the same circumstances, it proclaimed that he had inside information that he knew the world was about to end. And it didn't then either, obviously. So, um, yeah, I, I'm kind of aware and wary of new religious movements, uh, the kind of that do get labelled cults, so cults is quite a derogatory term, but we have to be careful with that because all religions began as cults to some extent, whether it was Jesus and his followers or Buddha or Muhammad, they were all cults to begin with until they became the norm and became the accepted religion. So there are lots of new religious groups. I think that's partly at the moment, um, since the end of World War Two. World War, so many people died and there was such great waste of life that I think it was such a test for people's faith that after World War II, a lot of people turned away from the church and it left a kind of spiritual vacuum. And that's still, I think, continuing today. People are leaving the church in droves. Both uh, priests and uh, lay people uh, are abandoning the church to some extent and looking for other outlets for their spirituality. I don't think the church in its current form particularly meets people's needs spiritually. I think it's stuck in that kind of controlling political mechanism that was created to control societies that couldn't really look after themselves. But now people are educated. They can make their own kind of moral decisions. So I kind of wished it would move away from all that and actually try and support people in their spirituality rather than just tell them thou shalt not. Um, but I think that's happened a lot, certainly in the latter half of the 20th century. We were heading towards a millennium that was kind of contrived date to some extent. It's interesting, though, that its its origin, I think, is pre-Christian in that. I mean, there is the Chinese one as well that's 2016, the so-called Mayan one, which was meant to be 2012. Um, the idea that Jesus would return after 2000 years is slightly non-canonical to the Bible, but also in Zoroastrianism, which was a thousand years prior to Jesus, it said that the seed is in the lake and will return after 3,000 years. So that coincides. I think that was pretty much adopted by Christianity without them realising. Um, well, doesn't even Isaac Newton, who most people probably oh. aren't aware of, has you know, it was into all manner of esoteric things, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. 2060 or 2070, I can't remember which it was. I'm not sure which one it was, but yeah, 90% of Newton's writings are about alchemy, nothing to do with science. And the idea that an apple, you know, fell on his head, he didn't learn that from science. That kind of knowledge had been around a long time before. Um, so yeah, Newton's a very interesting character. Um, anyone who does any serious research into him can't help, I think, but be swayed by the fact that he was so entrenched in the occult. Because in those times, there, was a, there wasn't a, a huge difference Everything they saw in that age was kind of uh, had an element of being 
sort of artistic, political, and occult, and religious, and, spirit, and and things were bound up. So you didn't look at one thing from one facet and think, well, magnetism—that's pure science. Magnetism is also a, it can be used in mesmerism and other spiritual kind of ways. So it, it think they saw the dimension of things. It's quite an alchemical way of looking at things from all sides. So I think he kind of came out of that. But yes, there's there's been countless seers and. I looked at it, it's very interesting because if you start to look at prophecy as an idea in itself, if you really start to dig into it, where does it take you? Because you have to at some point come up, you come up against, I can give, there are countless, evidence, countless examples of it happening that are entirely accurate. Old Mother Shipton, Nostradamus, the astrologer William Lilly, all predicted the fire of London would happen in 1666. William Lilly, who was, who was an astrologer, got the date. He got the actual day. He was so accurate, the fire of London would happen on this day, on this year, um, that he was arrested for it. And he had to prove that he wasn't actually in London and had nothing to do with the fire of London because he was so accurate in his prediction. He, they believed he must have caused it because he'd written about it previously. Um, so you've got three people there. Nostradamus being in France at the time. Old Mother Shipton was an old English seer. If you read old Mother Shipton's prophecies, they're phenomenally kind of accurate. Her insight into where the world would be in the 20th century. I mean, she talks about carriages without horses. And she was 16th century. And she's talking about carriages moving without horses, thoughts flying around the world in the twinkling of an eye, underwater men can walk, uh, metal fish that swim beneath the sea with men in them. Men flying faster than birds, soaring in the sky. Women with their hair cut short, wearing trousers. Um, and this is 400 years ago, and it's almost like she had a clear window on the 20th century in World War Two. Well, this brings us on to, for me, one of the most interesting aspects about your book, because one of the reasons I enjoyed it so much, not only because you don't have an axe to grind, you know, you're not a religious uh, part of the religious establishment, or you're not trying to generate sensationalism despite the overall you know um subject matter of the book you're talking about the science in some of this you're saying that what there are famous examples of prophecy as you just mentioned so there are problems yeah. with prophecy but we cannot write this entire phenomenon off and you're you then get into all sorts of subject areas like the nature of time and consciousness and yes. syn- synchronicity quantum physics the notion of a multiverse and the co-creation of consensus reality and the, all those topics are major areas of interest to me. And I think that's what makes your book stand out is you do look at that and ask, okay, what, how could we possibly begin to explain how this could be happening? And yeah. I've talked to some scientists who talk about, you know, all events that could happen do happen and that our idea of the flow of time is, how can I put it? It's just, it is our perception, but yes. that the past and the future and the present don't exist in this linear timeline yeah. the way that we our experience tells us yes uh, you can't i mean you cannot sensibly approach kind of prophecy without at some point facing up to a few of the major issues around it because yes there's evidence that it seems to exist and people seem capable of seeing the future one of the problems that creates is predeterminism and this idea that you have no free will uh, that has quite an impact on things like religions, because if Christians can't do anything to save themselves, if they're predestined to live out their lives, then there's no salvation. But on the individual, if you think you've got free will, but somebody saw you 
in a vision in three years time in a specific time and place doing a specific thing have you got free will because you're always destined to do that be there and do that so there was this problem around free will which lends itself to all sorts of philosophical and psychological ideals and then there's the problem of actual what's happening is the person's consciousness time traveling is a perception going into the future is the future coming reaching back to them and what and trying to get some kind of understanding of how that could be and yeah you can't help but start wandering on into non-local events and quantum theory and things like that and the elasticity of time this mental idea that we have that time is fixed and everything happens in a straight order but if you go into dream states in a dream state, nothing particularly happens in order and locations and you can jump around. And one of the ideas we have that we're not dreaming is based on our perception of time. You know you're awake because your perception of time is continuous, whereas when you dream, it's all random. But it might be the other way around. That might be when we're alive. And this might be some kind of holographic idea of our brain trying to reorganize our lives. It's very, it gets very strange very fast. But I did try and delve into the kind of the possible sciences behind it. And I did come up with some models of perception, this idea that the that time is not entirely fixed, but there is a thread that runs through it. And you can deviate from that thread that you have a certain amount of free will to alter your destiny and to alter time. Um it's, but yeah, it, it gets quite quite deep, quite fast, in very different directions. Because transpersonal psychology can has a kind of view of it, and psychology has a view of it, and science will have a view of it, and quantum theorists will have it. And you, I try to kind of take something of each of those, and, and see if I could find a working model that would make sense of it. Because from the outside, it shouldn't be possible it simply shouldn't be possible and yet there are people in history who quite clearly seen things and produced evidence uh, that's almost irrefutable one of the things that i've learned over several years of talking to people researchers working in some of these cutting edge areas is that if we start to look through a different lens at things a very large percentage of what are currently considered mysteries or bizarre phenomena whatever category anything that would have been in unexplained magazine back in the 1980s basically i love that magazine yes <laughs> yes i think a lot of us did from that era but a lot of those things you could start to put that in, into a scientific framework with some of the understandings that are currently coming to light and we do have a, an establishment particularly a scientific establishment that says but if something is not possible with our current understanding then even if it happens oh well it didn't happen it didn't happen because it's not possible. And you put say, oh, well, yeah. it did because here we have the... No, no, it didn't happen. Science has its own limits, for better or worse, that everything has to be provable, which is fine within the limits of science, um, that they can only consider things to be scientifically found, proven, if it, if you can replicate it. Now, you, you there are plenty of things we experience, like dreams, that you can't scientifically prove because you can't recreate them under laboratory com conditions. Love is another one. Um, scientists can't, in, you know, they can give you chemical brain reactions. They can give you kind of your pulse rate changes. They can give you all sorts of uh, kind of effects from it. Uh, there's a very interesting one in news a lot, which is the placebo 
effect. They talk about alternative health and they say it's a placebo effect. I've never read anything that really seriously took apart what the placebo effect means, because what it actually means is that your mind can control and manage your illness. Your consciousness can affect completely your physicality. Yeah, because a a placebo by definition cannot have an effect. Yes. So you take something that has no effect whatsoever. Psychologically, you believe it works and then it works. And that is what the placebo effect is, at which point you have purely mind over matter happening. So science is quite happy to say that's the placebo effect, but it's very careful not to ever really fully explain what the implications of the placebo effect is which is that you don't need any medicines. Your mind is quite capable of probably healing pretty much anything. So they won't go that step. Um, so I, I find science, it's, it has its uses, but it's quite limited, I feel. <laughs> well, as you mentioned, uh, going back even to the time of Newton, which is not that long ago, but certainly extending back beyond that time, and I've covered this discussion point many, many times on here, is that there was... A time and it was probably most of our history actually where science and spirituality were not two uh, divided camps basically yeah absolutely I, I think it was an incredible mistake that that's what happened that the rationalization took over and things got segmented and things like numbers the value and meaning of numbers got removed so in the age of enlightenment people understood that numbers weren't just uh, counters for things that they actually had an intrinsic value that goes right back the Hebrew language is based on numeric values and things like that. Um, and that had an importance. Uh, you can still see that in the Kabbalistic workings um, in magic and areas like that. It, it's been lost. It's been separated so much now that science is divorced from meaning. And there's a problem with that because logic in itself is kind of an infinite corridor that's ultimately it, it has no meaning. It brings no value. Uh, and if you live to a purely scientific life, you live a meaningless life because it refuses to allow meaning in. The I think season. that's very, very important, actually. And um, I think because yeah. you know, numbers you just mentioned, I mean, in, in, in magic, those could be symbols. You know, yes, symbols, absolutely. Symbolism is one of the cornerstones in magic. And this idea of meaning is so important because that's what actually drives us in life to, yes. to, to find meaning, whether it's in something small, you know, a small bit of meaning yeah. in a small thing yeah. or whether it's like, why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? You know, that's, yes. that's, and, and this is the other thing that I think a lot of scientists are misunderstanding in terms of technology going forward. I mean, I was a big fan of all those dystopian um, yes. novels and films back in the 70s and 80s. And a lot of you would get a future, uh, for example, in um, uh, a future in like Rollerball, for example, Rollerball, where yeah. the whole society was controlled by a central computer. And you've got all yes. manner of films, including like HAL in 2001, all manner of computers and robots. You go back to 1984 with the suppression of emotions and Big yes. Brother and the whole everything you do is monitored and measured and and, we're, and how close we seem to that in some ways. But, but how devalued spirituality has become by it as well. Yeah, exactly. Sense. And of course, we, spirituality is as opposed to religion, which is what we're going to be talking about in a minute. But that's a yeah. whole other debate. <laughs> but I think that a lot of yes. people, transhumanist types, are, are missing the idea of meaning, for example, if we're going to merge with computers and become the Borg, or if we're going to if we're going to finally master artificial intelligence, how are we going to quote unquote teach a computer what meaning is? Yes. Will it, will yes. any man-made system like that ever be able to understand sarcasm? 
you do look at things and think, well, who is qualified to decide on human cloning? Who really should have the say? Because that covers so many areas. And yeah, if it's left to scientists, they'll do it because it's possible. Well, we already see that with, um, you know, some of the gene splicing and stuff that's going yes, on. Yeah, the genetic. Uh, not just not just with people like Monsanto, but in other labs where they're mm. they're putting you know spiders and sheep together and all sorts all sorts yes. of things. <laughs> yeah, mixing DNAs. Mm. Yeah, that that's not going to end well, is it? But people seem to turn a blind eye to that if there's profit involved. Well, I think that a lot of the genetic ma- ma- manipulation mm. that might be geared towards human cloning. Uh, we saw, remember, Dolly the sheep was cloned, but yeah. you know, enormous problems there. And I think that and the whole transhumanist idea in any case is fixated on an idea of this life and the body that we're in being all there is. So therefore, you've yes. desperately got to extend it as far as possible. And that, that again, is just a reductionistic scientific way of looking at things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's very removed from meaning and spirituality and any kind of growth in that. There's a lot about staying the same and not aging and um, that whole culture. It's quite desperate to cling on to what it is and not develop which seems quite kind of i don't know juvenile to me in a way it doesn't seem very mature aside from living what's more human than dying yeah you know that's part of the human experience yeah and the the whole idea of prolonging life when you're going to spend most of it as an old person i don't really see the point (laughs) the point in that Turning, turning to your book again, um, just to remind yeah. listeners, The Last Pope, which is uh, subtitled Francis and the Fall of the Vatican. Um, as we were learning, just you know, the, the overview of your book, I mean, at the time, prophecy was very important in Christianity yeah, and other religions and spiritual traditions, of course. But later, you know, and certainly in the modern age, there's been a denial of the importance of this tradition. And I was just wondering, is, is that because even in even churches in the modern age have to sort of kowtow somewhat to a scientific worldview. No, I think it came, it was much earlier than that. It was very early that the the Catholic Church ceased to kind of support prophecy. What what they did was they capped it at the Bible. Basically, they refused to comment or condone any prophecy that's written after the book of Revelation. So anything that's outside of the Bible since then the Catholic Church will not in any way publicly condone, um, even though they quite clearly put a lot of weight on many of the prophecies uh, that appear. And in some cases, those prophecies have come from saints. In some cases, even popes have made prophecies. And these have a, you can tell the amount of weight and importance. So the secrets of Fatima, the prophecies related to the vision of uh, three children at Fatima, Two of those were recorded and made public. It was supposed, it was a Virgin Mary apparition in the early 20th century uh, in Portugal. And the, these children saw a figure, or originally they saw a light. It was a grandmother who said it was the Virgin Mary. Um, they had a number of visitations over a number of months, by which time thousands of people would turn up. Only the children could see the figure of Mary and Hera, hear her but other people could see phenomena with the sun and the sky and they uh, supposedly received three secrets and these were given to the then pope uh, sorry three they were given three prophecies uh, the third one was made up of supposedly three secrets 
The first two were released and the third one was kept secret and was supposed to be released in the early 1960s, but the Vatican reneged. It never released it until the year 2000. It made, the Vatican made a statement and released a prophecy, what looked like a prophecy, um, but it didn't match the description that this girl had left us. So we're, it, it, it's pretty much evidence that they they have never released a third prophecy. So for an organisation that claims that prophecy no longer, well, they don't really claim that it's not credible, but the fact that they won't give it credit, yet they go to those kind of lengths that after 70 years, 80 years, we still cannot read this final prophecy. Um, it's quite interesting. Uh, so they, prophecy clearly has an impact on the current church. They do take notice, um, depending on the source of the prophecy. And certainly if it's from a saint or a pope, then it's taken with high regard. They just can't publicly state, make statements about it. Uh, I think the reason that, I think where that actually came from, to get back to your question, is they, the Catholic Church works only if it has complete control. So if somebody else comes along and claims to have direct access to God or the Holy Spirit and to be receiving divine information. This is gnosis. This is direct contact with God. Um, that does away with popes, priests and everybody. That person becomes the, the, the connection we have with God or certainly for themselves, they themselves. And you find this with many of the saints. Many of the saints felt they were being spoken to directly by God. They were having an experience of what's known as gnosis. And if you achieve Gnosis, you would never go and listen to a priest or a pope because you had a direct conduit to the divine. You felt you could hear and speak with the divine. Um, the Holy Spirit is considered God's kind of communicator who would reveal God's will to man. So a lot of the saints in that believed they were in commun communication with the Holy Spirit. The problem with that for the Vatican, of course, was if they condoned any of that or gave credibility to any of it it takes away their power because their power to be the conduit to god you can only reach salvation through the church ceases to exist if other people have a direct the root of their own well it would uh, certainly save a lot on sherry and roast pheasant if all the priests and the whole crowd all went away <laughs> Well, I mean, it'd be very different religion if they measured the popes, uh, the, the candidates for the pope on their ability to actually contact the divine, <laughs> which you would have thought would have been their purpose. But obviously it's not. It's a kind of figurehead thing. Yeah, it'd probably, probably take a lot longer to elect a new pope as well. Yes. Yeah, they might only get one every two or three hundred years. Um, <laughs> Well, talking about the the, the, the prophecies, because the whole idea here is that we could be in the current Pope Francis looking at the yeah. last Pope. These prophecies of St. Malachi, perhaps just worth summing up, uh, you know, where those came from, when they were published, and the idea that there's kind of in two halves, as it were, because when they appeared, some of the prophecies were already in the past. Yeah, there's quite a story to these, these prophecies. Um, Pope Malachi was around 12th century towards the end of the 12th century he went, visited Rome and we have a good biography St Bernard of Clairvaux wrote a full biography of his good friend St Malachi and he mentions on a number of times that he was a healer he could heal people uh, with touch he could pray for people and heal them so he, he performed many many miracles um, and he could also prophesize but 
St Bernard doesn't mention the prophecies of the popes and that's been a sticking point because he, he gives quite a detailed account of Malachi's life. Other people do as well. Uh, St Malachi visited Rome and he visited the then pope and while he was there, according to an account by Kusharat, who's a, a, a Catholic historian from a much later century, I think around the 17th century, um, he had a vision in which he saw all the popes from that time to the final pope. So, and he, he, his scribe recorded a single line of Latin for each one of them. So he wrote down a line describing each pope, just one short line, sometimes only two words. And this would describe every pope to the present day. Now, these were supposedly given to the then pope who locks them away in the Vatican and then, and they're rumoured to exist, but they don't resurface for nearly 400 years. So in, the, in 1590, they were supposedly rediscovered in the Vatican. In 1595, a publication comes out uh, by Arnold de Rion um, that includes the prophecies of the popes. It's this huge tome of a, a compilation of writings. Uh, there is an original in the Vatican and there is an original in the British Library. So I've had... I've held the original and I've read the prophecies in their first published printed form, the first edition of Weon's book. And it is this simple list. What Weon had done was he'd explained the popes up to that point, uh, the prophecies and how they linked to the popes. So we had an explanation for the first 400 years of popes. The remaining popes from then to present day obviously had nothing attached to them. So... Uh, they were also released at a time where they appeared to support, by the prophecy, one of the candidates. Because they were re released at the time of a conclave when a new pope was being voted in. And it looked like propaganda. It looked like these prophecies had been revealed, uh, had been accredited to Malachi. And it was like, here's 400 years worth of prophecy and the next pope's got this title. And therefore, this man has to be the next pope. So it all looks like propaganda which is fine, and you can write the whole thing off as that. But when you really look into it, you find that the prophecies that happened before they were published and the prophecies that happened after are identical in nature. So the style of writing doesn't change. They don't become any more vague. They're just as specific as before these were revealed. And they work. So the later ones, um, some of them are entirely accurate in who they describe and they describe people that in no way could have been contrived. It's not like the conclaves after the, the prophecy of the Pope sat around and said, who do we vote in that fits the prophecy? And one of them is Rapacious Eagle for a Pope whose time as the Pope was completely overshadowed by Napoleon. And Napoleon was, his symbol was the eagle. And, and it can, you couldn't have put a more accurate kind of epithet for this guy. Um, and there were loads right up to present day. Um, Pope Benedict the Fifteenth, who's who served in 1914 to 1922, and he witnessed the Bolshevik Revolution, which outlawed Catholicism in Russia, the 1918 Spanish Flu, which killed about 18 million people across Europe, and the First World War, which killed about 20 million people. His epithet, his two-word description, supposedly written nearly 700 years before. Is religion depopulated and whatever you looked at that guy's career and his time as Pope if you were going to sum it up in two years religion depopulated 
sums up Europe at that exact moment, 1914 to 1922. So you get these real direct hits. You get some that are slightly harder to work out. But I think I found pretty much a description for everybody. The whole list, the whole 112, you could pretty much find something that related to that person. Some of them I wasn't so comfortable with, but I was always honest in the book and said, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure if I've got this right. Um, one of them in particular had a title and only after he died, um, somebody made a film of him in the 1930s, I think it was, that used that title, but there really isn't any other link. So that one's kind of self-fulfilling. But most of them, um, Pope Leo XIII, 1878, is described as light in heavens, light in the heavens, and his coat of arms was a shooting star. So you don't, it's not like you have to go and really trawl through their lives and find some vague link. They're almost, if you read the basics about these popes, you find that they fit. Um, Rastrello's interesting. He was the Italian became Pope Innocent the Twelfth in 1691. Um, Rastrello is Italian for rake, and the prophecy for him translates to rake in the door. Now, the chances of somebody actually having a surname rake in that conclave, and they had a five-month-long conclave, it was a real long battle to elect someone, and this guy is kind of revealed as the Pope, and his name's rake. And it, it, you can't, you know, that's, that's not a chance thing. You've gone beyond chance at that stage. So you have all these prophecies, but the final one is Peter the Roman, and it's the only one that's got any more text around it. And the text is very clear. It says, in the final persecution, the seat of the Holy Roman Church will be occupied by Peter the Roman, who will feed the sheep through many tribulations. And when these things are finished, the city of seven hills will be destroyed and the formidable judge will judge his people. The end. That's the current Pope. Um, <clears throat> Peter the Roman, uh, Pope Francis took the name Francis of Assisi. St Francis' name, middle name was Peter. Anyone who works for the Roman Curia is considered a Roman, in quote marks. Um, Pope Francis had five different roles in the Roman Curia. He is a Peter the Roman. He fits the prophecy perfectly well uh, with very little stretch of the imagination. Um, and his time is now. So I then looked around the idea of tribulations and I looked at um, the kind of the fall of the seven, the seven hills, city of seven hills is Rome, obviously. Um, the idea that Rome would be destroyed. So it taught, it's really alluding to the end times and the final persecution and the formidable judge in the book of Revelation, the formidable judge is Jesus. It's part of the second coming of Jesus. So the, that's where the prophecy leads us. I mean, I, I'm not a Catholic, so I, I kind of look at these things with some, I'm not entirely entrenched in these things. So I, I, I kind of researched around them and tried to work out what the language was really saying and what it might be alluding to. Uh, and we live in interesting times. The, the current Pope faces a number of major challenges. Um, the, the finances of the Catholic Church are in immense disarray. There's clearly a lot of issues around the Vatican Bank. Yeah, well, I was just about to, to come on to that. But just before I do, just before, yeah, sure. before I forget, actually, okay. now, it's, it's a given point that, you know, when the prophecies were published, yes, you had the ones extending back into the past. And if they were published just for propaganda, 
then of course why would they bother constructing prophecies going so far into the future if they yes. if all they were looking to do was to get a particular pope elected but yeah you could also ask over the centuries then after they were published why would the vatican or any factions within it want to consciously fulfill the prophecies and but on the other hand what would they want to go out of their way to deny them you know or how much were they were even in the consciousness over the centuries i don't know but certainly if anyone was paying attention then you would think if there was ever a time when they wanted to kind of sidestep the prophecy it would have been now yes but one of the things was uh we know because at various times, one of the candidates, one of the prophecies was for a mariner. A pope, it said a pope and a mariner. So one of the, um, oh, Shepherd and Mariner. So one of the candidates actually hired a boat full of sheep and travelled down the Tiber in Rome before the papal elections to try and look like he fitted the prophecy. So it's kind of clear that the Vatican hasn't exactly let go of the idea that these might have some value when you've got um, cardinals pretending, you know, acting out as if they were <clears throat> the suitable candidate according to the prophecies and trying to live that out to get elected. He didn't get it. It went to a um, someone from Venice uh, <laughs> who were considered mariners in the prophecies. Uh, so, yeah, they but they're, they're in this weird position because Christianity is an apocalyptic religion. It doesn't end well. It ends with an apocalypse. So there's this sense that, yes, we're moving towards an apocalypse. But also, do we really want to move towards an apocalypse? Because it feels quite destructive. It doesn't It doesn't read the city of Seven Hills being destroyed. It doesn't come across as this great kind of spiritual rapture where everyone happily floats up into the sky. It sounds a bit more um, violent than that. So I think there is probably somewhere within the Vatican a mix of this is part of our faith and it's central to it, but it's not perhaps something we're entirely comfortable with happening. But yeah, they elected. I mean, the Pope picks his own, chooses his own name, so he chose um, Pope Francis. Uh, he must have known that Francis' middle name, as he studied him and took after him in his uh, in the way he'd lived. Pope Francis of Assisi was devoted to poverty, and, and so is the current Pope. Um, he must have known that his middle name was Peter. He must know that in some way, by taking that name, he fulfills that prophecy. Well, as you were just getting on to a moment ago, the, the enormous problems faced by the Catholic Church today, and people listening now don't need to be, if they're Catholics, if they're <laughs> not Catholics, if they're Jewish, Muslim, or whatever they happen to be, Moonies, they're going to be aware that there are huge problems a lot of them centering around money. I mean, but I mean, right back to, well, well beyond that, but in my lifetime, going right back to the days of Robert, Roberto Calvi, yes. um, you know, there's, uh, uh, the yeah. Vatican's always been talked about in terms of financial intrigue. And we have a World Bank whistleblower out um, this year and the Vatican are in the headlines again for financial irregularities, shall we call it. And this is to say nothing of the huge child abuse scandals that have been rumbling on for decades. So yes. they may put a brave face on it. And certainly this current Pope, um, whether he's the last or not, it seemed to be a more an easier sell to people, whether they're Catholic or not. You know, a bit more media friendly. Um, he, he kind of ways is one of the ma major problems they have is over seventy five million people in Christians in South America have converted to Pentecostalism. Seventy five million people have left the Catholic Church to move to have literally moved into Pentecostalism because they don't feel that the Catholic Church was reaching out for them or, or meeting their needs. Um, so the current Pope, who's from Argentina, 
is a very good kind of compromise. He's half Italian by birth because there was an issue. There hasn't the last two popes were not Italian. Before that, for 400 years, they'd all been Italian. So this has been a long time. Um, uh, so the, the, there was a lot of pressure from the Italian members of the conclave for it to be an Italian pope. And then you've got this guy who's half Italian, half South American, the largest Catholic population of any one country is in Brazil. I actually thought that it would be the Brazilian that, that was uh, elected pope simply because the current pope had been in the previous conclave and had lost out to Cardinal Ratzinger. So I thought that might stand against him, but it was going to be one of the two. That wasn't that wasn't a prophecy. That was kind of obvious that the Catholic Church, in order to address its issues, needed to address South America. So you have that. Um, he is devoted to alleviating poverty, which is a great thing for the Catholic Church to appear to do that, considering it's sitting on so what appears to be sitting on so much wealth. I doubt if it's financially fluid. The Vatican Bank was created in the 1940s after World War Two and is completely secretive. It's not audited by anybody. So it's it's a prime candidate for money laundering and nefarious activities because nobody is looking at those books we don't know if it's completely bankrupt or if it's completely just soaking up the riches of the world nobody can really tell but we know that it's corrupt because insiders have made that very public um so these are the kind of challenges he's facing the image the catholic church has is driving away priests it's preventing any young people from joining i think the average age of a priest now is is well over 40 the average age of a papal candidate, a cardinal, is well over 60. So they're almost a dying breed. There was very little young blood going into the church. Yeah, the book actually, sorry to interrupt you, just yeah, an interesting nugget of information in the book is that um, the number of priests is in sharp decline, as is the congregation. But yes. the, number, the number of cardinals, they may be getting older, but that number of cardinals is actually on the increase. And this reminded me of... Um, uh, big uh, government-run agencies going wrong because the cardinals are kind of like middle management, isn't it? <laughs> you know, and you get yeah. uh, too many, too much in the middle management sector. That is really the sign of a company, uh, or perhaps in this case, an empire in decline. Yes. Well, they have this problem of uh, they have such a poor image to people outside the church. You know, they're, they, they're not attracting people and young people. Uh, I, I think the whole issue of child abuse is really core, cool, and I really looked at it quite seriously I've done quite a bit of work on psychology and in different areas of research so I didn't kind of gloss over that I felt it had to be looked at um, and I kind of concluded that uh, the vow of celibacy which was inspired by Matt as a chapter in Matthew 1912 where Jesus is actually referring to eunuchs as being closer to God he's not referring to celibate people he's referring to eunuchs and this is what's used um, to kind of justify this ongoing celibacy within the church. The problem with celibacy is it in an organisation is that it attracts people who have shame and issues around their sexuality. If they repress their sexuality or try to because they're a paedophile or they have some distortion in their sexuality, the Catholic Church is quite a welcoming place because you think, you know, they would think, well, if I go there, I don't have to deal with my sexuality, I can repress it. But of course, unconsciously, they're putting themselves in a position of power over people and sometimes minors. So it's like any distortion addiction. It's like alcoholics trying to get a job in a pub and saying, well, if I work behind the bar, I won't be drinking. When, of course, unconsciously, they're trying to get access to alcohol. 
So I think the church could completely change if they got rid of celibacy, allowed female priests and allowed marriage, because then it uncovers that whole secrecy thing around sexuality and that whole repression of sexuality. Because we're, we're all human, we all have all the complete array of feelings, emotions and urges. Um, so to the idea that you can join an organisation and just switch something off that's biological, it's not going to happen. Um, no, you might as well say, you know, if you're going to be a priest, that you're not allowed to eat or drink again. Yes. Uh, I mean, and some people do reach a state where they naturally arrive at being celibate, I think. But I don't think it's something that's going to happen to an 18 year old who's going into the priesthood. That's not really going to happen. Or it would happen so rarely that you'd still have next to no priests. So I, I think that's a major stumbling block that he has to deal with. And I think he'll be measured. This pope will be measured ultimately on how he manages the whole issue of um, the secrecy around paedophiles and the way they've been hidden by the church or just moved around, which give, uh, people have lost trust and lost faith. And when you don't trust people that are supposedly closer to God than you, when you find that they're distorted or perverted, it completely undermines the whole religion. Um, so I, I think he really needs to address that. And if I was him, I'd do away with celibacy, I'd allow marriage, and I'd allow female priests as fast as possible. And I think the uh, and make the organisation more spiritual if they just move towards spirituality and close the bank down and things like that. Well, I think the thing with our modern age is, though, that um, because here in the early 21st century, despite all the problems the world's facing, we kind of think we're the best there's ever been. Things have never been better overall. <laughs> We've got a religion of progress and everything seems monolithic. It seems like our society, this civilization, as we have arrived now and some version of this will exist forever. Whereas, of course, empires and entire civilizations have been destroyed before and, and faded away. Yeah. And But the idea of there being no Catholic church or it being reduced to a little marginal sect on an island somewhere, that seems impossible to imagine. It, Even for you and I, it seems somehow impossible, never well, mind for people within it. I think people would go on believing, and I think you'd always have a Catholic church, but they were at great risk if they'd have promoted a, a purely Italian pope there was a real risk that south america would break away and that countries would start to break away and form their own local catholic churches and that the whole thing would start to decentralize and break down that way so it may not be a destruction of the catholic church per se it may be that it's the the idea of the pope actually is the last uh it is the last pope in that you don't need any further pope so they you have like a local pope for well, each country oh on that note, I suppose, I mean, yeah, I was, I was just thinking the idea of multi-popes because in the past, yes. you, as you said, it sounds rather comical, but there were anti-popes, which were basically other people who'd set themselves up somehow and said, no, they had a claim to be pope or whatever it was. Yeah. So perhaps yeah. that will be it will be slightly metaphorical in terms of the you know end of the church. And perhaps the destruction of Rome thing is, is a metaphor or will turn out to be in some way. It's hard to tell, isn't it? We won't know unless something happens. Um, will Rome still be standing? The fact that one of the actual popes had a vision of Rome being destroyed as well and had a vision of the pope fleeing and stepping over the bodies of dead cardinals and that the place was really physically being uh, pulled to the ground. So that, that one's quite interesting. Um, he had that in a vision and recounted it. It was from the early 20th century, I think. So they have within themselves these kind of ideas that Rome might be physically destroyed. 
uh, in the Old Testament as well, in the New Testament, there's obviously the stories around <clears throat> the book of Revelation is very hard to analyse and to break down. I did quite a bit of work on it. Um, but there is this kind of repetition of the number seven, the seven heads and things like that, possibly representing Rome. Because when it was written, of course, the Romans had control of Israel. So a lot of a lot that's written in the New Testament is actually anti-Roman propaganda. So now you've got Rome, who rules Christianity, um, who were the enemy at the time of the of the Bible. So it's up, it's kind of upside down at the moment. So it may be that it that spoke of Rome being destroyed. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think they need to have a kind of spiritual revival and to rethink some of the more uh, areas that they've that are the challenges that are facing Pope Francis. Um, but it, I don't know. I think it will exist in some form. Uh, it, it has to kind of. Can, people need a spiritual outlet. They need a religion. It's not for us to take away for all that kind of. I don't wish to sound cynical, but I do feel that I am being cynical sometimes. Uh, it's not for us to take that away from people who find their faith through Catholicism and find their spirituality in that path, and that's theirs. And it's for, nobody can take that away from them. And I think that will always continue in some form. Uh, but I think we'll have a very different Catholic Church within the next decade, whatever happens, whether there's divine intervention or not. I don't think it's a sustainable organisation in its current form. Now, you mentioned Gnosis quite early on in the interview. Yes. They were mentioned earlier as well, the divide between science and spirituality. And I think as those two sort of begin to merge at the edges again, I think that there'll be, there'll be a more, more direct experience of the divine or whatever you want to call it, just something above and beyond us. I, I above think, and beyond the material world. I think some areas, psychology, if you read into transpersonal psychology, which Jung had kind of started, and in transpersonal psychology, there's a lot of room for spiritual experience. Um, there's a book called Psychosynthesis that was written in the 1920s that has a, a movement of psychotherapists that, that use it and work in it. I did some training in it um, that allows for the spiritual. So in those areas, in, uh, people like Maslow of uh, the psychologist Maslow has written great work um, about having deeper experiences. He calls them peak experiences of life, of being alive and, and quite spiritual. And they're quite Gnostic. When you read them, they're like Gnostic revelations. Uh, so I think there are a lot of areas that weren't considered kind of spiritual, and certainly at the fringes of science, where scientists are starting to discover things that kind of are so overwhelming, uh, are so deep that they they can't help but throw your perception of reality completely and make you think there's something under all this there's some not grand plan perhaps you know maybe that the universe appears to have a kind of consciousness of its own a self-aware universe that kind of idea so i think those things are coming i think in every civilization in every culture throughout history there has been spirituality however it's been packaged modeled or controlled or used or exploited in some cases, it's ever present. So I don't think that'll ever leave us. The, but it's when it forms into religions, I think it becomes quite problematic and people start to put rules in place and structures around it. I think that can be um, detrimental to people's spiritual growth. I'd like to see a church that supports people in whatever their spiritual direction. And at the end of the day, we're talking here, no matter how actual and apocalyptic any of this might get, 
really talking about the end of the church, not the end of the world. And yes, it's very, yes. e- very easy for when you're within that situation, uh, the, if the church is your world, uh, to see it in apocalyptic terms. But, um, you know, you or I are, are unlikely to be directly affected by, um, well, you know, a steep decline in the Catholic Church numbers or their status or their finances or whatever it happens to be. No, not entirely. But one of the things that's quite surprising is how much Christianity has underpinned our existence, our lives, our rules, the laws. Many laws in many countries are based on the Ten Commandments. So a lot of what we think we know and where we come from, we were raised in Christian societies, even if we weren't raised as Christians. So that's kind of embedded in us somewhere. So I think it will impact people more than they would maybe perhaps expect. And I think that's why things like the Da Vinci Code really resonated with people, because what they had didn't feel quite right. And there's something, however badly the Da Vinci Code is written, the ideas in it seem more feasible somehow, seem more real than what we were taught. So I think there's some kind of middle ground there, but we were all raised, certainly us in the West, were raised in a Christian environment. And it, it's hard to work out where that stops and we start sometimes. Oh, I, I totally agree with that. I just, I guess what I meant was that a lot of what we're raised in the structures isn't exclusive to Christianity. For example, you know, the idea that the tenets set out in the Ten Commandments um, yeah. somehow don't exist within people. I mean, I, I think people are inherently good and inherently want to help other people and inherently empathetic and, yes. and what have you. So, you know, I do, I'm just saying that Christianity doesn't have a monopoly or nor does any organized religion oh, no. on, on no, no. goodness or uh, justice or anything like that. No, I, I see what you mean. No, and the, and the ideas of salvation that you have to be one of the chosen and all that is just, you know, doesn't stand for us. Um, but it is interesting that the three major religions in somewhere like Jerusalem are all apocalyptic. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all apocalyptic. So that that's quite <laughs> kind of. There's a lot of potential because it, when you've got people like American presidents talking about crusades, uh, when they, when George Bush went to war in the Middle East, um, he used the term crusade in his speeches. I found that really disturbing because that is somebody who has the power to create a worldwide apocalypse, who's perceiving the world from a very Christian standpoint and very much an us and them towards Islam or other countries. And I don't think that, I think that's quite a scary position to be in. Uh, the current uh, president is nowhere near as frightening, but... Uh, He's nowhere near as stupid. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you never know when you're going to get one back, if it's going to swing the other way at some point. Oh, yeah, and I'm uh, certainly no fan of Obama. I'm no fan of any American president <laughs> in particular, not, not one I can remember anyway. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Robert, listen, uh, today, we've, again, we've been talking about your recent book, The Last Pope, and there's so much covered in there that we really could talk all day. But perhaps we should just bring things to a close. Perhaps you'd like to share with listeners, again, details of where they can get the book. It's widely available. You've got other books out there. I uh, don't know if you've got a website or just anything else you'd like to share. Uh, you can find me. I have a website called robhowells.co.uk. My books are on Amazon under the name Robert Howells. Uh, my first book, Inside the Priory of Sion, is much denser and heavier going and has much more detail because it was based on 20 years' worth of research. Uh, the, the Pope book is a bit easier to read and a bit clearer in its its direction and what it's covering. It does cover a lot of, I think for me, the interesting parts were trying to work out ideas around prophecy and what that really means and how that might work in terms of science and psychology. 
I think those are areas that are really fascinating. Uh, if you go to the Booksellers Association, if you're interested in supporting small bookshops, they have a bookshop finder where you can search for your local independent bookshop that you can order books from, and you can just go direct and order it from those if you don't wish to support any of the really big chains or um, online sellers. And yeah, I try to include resources for people to go off and look for themselves and you don't have to believe what I write or agree with me. But if you're interested, I might open some avenues of research for you. And do go and look at these things yourself. That's how I began. I went, you know, I did the footwork, the legwork, and I went to these places and tried to discover for myself. Excellent. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. <laughs> thank you very much. Goodbye. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. That's LegalizeFreedom.com, Legalize-Freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy, and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. Sein ist das Haus des Schmerzes, sein ist die Hand des Schafes.